What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Daniel Ben-Corin. And me, Farajasat. So this episode is a very special one because it's the first in a series that we are launching in partnership with the New York Times. The title of the series is Intelligent Times. And for this episode, it was a live event that we staged with the New York Times with their reporters, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, who were the two reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story. And they're the author of a book called She Said, which has just come out. Farah, tell us a bit about the episode. This was an amazing event and will be an amazing listen. We had the journalists, as you say, the investigative reporters from the New York Times, Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, and they speak about their journey to breaking the Weinstein scandal, how they started to research the stories, how they track down the sources. And then we also had them in conversation with some of the sources. So we had Rowena Chu, former assistant to Harvey Weinstein. We had Laura Madden, former production exec at Miramax Films in London, which was Harvey Weinstein's company. And Zelda Perkins, who was a former assistant to Weinstein and is now a campaigner against NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. And who moderated the discussion on the night? We had Carrie Gracie, the BBC News presenter and the author of Equal, a story of women, men and money. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you do, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find the show and it lets us know what you think. Good evening, everybody. Thank you all so much for coming. My name is Hannah Kay, and I'm the executive producer at Intelligence Squared. We're absolutely delighted and honored to have these extraordinary women on our stage tonight. Thank you all very much for coming. The kickoff for this event is this book, She Said, which is written by the two New York Times reporters, Jody. Judy Cantor, sorry, and Megan Toohey. Um, it's a really gripping, page-turning read about the painstaking work that they put into uncovering the evidence until they were ready to publish the uh, Harvey Weinstein story two years ago in the New York Times. And also about the courage of some of the sources who were brave enough to speak up. And we are delighted to have three of them here with us tonight. Now, this event is the first in our new series, which we're calling Intelligent Times. It's a collaboration between the New York Times and Intelligence Squared, and we're bringing together some of the most prominent writers and thinkers from the New York Times to come and take part in our events here in London. 
Next up, we have the paper's editor, Dean Baquet, and he's going to be in conversation with the historian Simon Sharma. They're going to be talking about how the media is dealing with things like the increasing polarity of our politics, not to mention the impeachment proceedings against Trump and the election race for next year in the US. And then on December the 4th, we have the Hollywood star Willem Dafoe. He's going to be in conversation with the New York Times European culture editor, Matt Anderson. And they're going to be talking about Defoe's amazing and adventurous experimental career as an actor on, in the movies and on stage. And you can find details of all of those on our website at intelligencesquared.com. And now, please, would you give a very warm welcome... Would you give a very warm welcome to our chair, BBC News presenter, Carrie Gracie. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. This is a very special event. I feel moved, I feel privileged to share this evening with these five courageous women. I hope you do too. Three of them have taken great legal and reputational risks to challenge a powerful foe in a system that so often protects the powerful. The other two, unflinchingly, inexorably, built a story that was a fortress of investigative reporting, one too strong for that powerful foe to pull down. And as a result, together these five women helped trigger the Me Too movement. I pay tribute to them. Let me start by introducing the panel. First, our two reporters, Jodie Cantor and Megan Tui, the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative team from the New York Times. Jodie's long reported on gender, power, technology, and culture. She also found time to write a best-selling book on the Obamas. Megan's work has often focused on the treatment of women. And during the 2016 presidential race, she reported the stories of many of those who accused Donald Trump of sexual misconduct. From the reporters to the sources, Zelda Perkins... Yep. Former assistant to Harvey Weinstein. Rowena Chu, also a former assistant to Harvey Weinstein. And Laura Madden, former production executive at Miramax Films here in London. We'll hear more about their subsequent lives um, in the course of the discussion. But right now, I want to move on to the story. So let's begin with the background. And just before we do that, I should say that this is a story which we all know has a past, but which also has a future. Because Harvey Weinstein is expected to face trial early next year with the criminal charges brought against him by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office 
and they include predatory sexual assault and rape. And I should say that Harvey Weinstein denies all allegations of non-consensual sex. So we're talking about allegations. Now, let's start with Jodie and Megan. Jodie, you first. We know now that there were rumours about Harvey Weinstein, not just for years, but for decades, both within his company and wider within the film industry. Why did all of this take so long? Well, Carrie, first of all, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Bloomsbury Publishing, which brought She Said to the UK. If you are a New York Times subscriber, thank you, because you paid for the Harvey Weinstein investigation (laughs) without even knowing what you were paying for. Um, And especially thank you, Zelda, Rowena, and Laura. You know, the reason we're so thrilled to be in London is that I think what many people don't understand is that this is very much a UK story. There's sort of this broad idea of the Harvey Weinstein victim as a famous actress in an evening dress. And that's true as far as it goes, but it is really because of decisions by these three women, and especially the early crucial decisions by Zelda and Laura, that we were able to publish this article. And so it's incredibly special to be with you here tonight to tell the story. So to answer your question, it's because people chose to protect Harvey Weinstein instead of protecting the women. Uh, What we found reporting the story and reporting the book is that it's an x-ray into how power so often works. And what we're trying to do in this book is take you behind the scenes to sort of see how that functions. And, you know, frankly, it's a kind of... invitation into our investigative partnership. And what we want to do is, because we know that these events have meant so much to so many people, we want to invite you along for our first hushed conversations with actresses, our first conversations with these three women, and the final confrontations with Weinstein in the halls of the New York Times. Thank you, Jodie. Now, Megan, why did you two get involved? Tell us the genesis of the story for you. Well, earlier in 2017, something remarkable happened. We actually flashed the the headline, but our colleagues, Emily Steele and Mike Schmidt, broke broke the story of Bill O'Reilly, probably one of the most powerful media figures um, on the right in the United States. And they broke the story of how he and Fox News had basically paid off women who had come forward with allegations of sexual harassment against him. Now, Fox had been aware of that. They had actually been involved in some of the secret settlements that were paid, which ultimately totaled more than $40 million. But it was really when the story was published in the New York Times that something really significant happened. Advertisers at Fox News were outraged, and almost immediately Bill O'Reilly was ousted from his job, something that seemed almost um, unfathomable only months earlier. And so the the editors and, and reporters at the New York Times took that as a significant turning point and sat down and asked what now seems like a quaint question. Are there other powerful men who have engaged in abuse of women and tried to cover it up? 
And so uh, Harvey Weinstein had long been a rumored predator in Hollywood. And so he was one of the people that we decided to investigate in 2017. But it's worth noting that we had investigations of alleged sexual harassment in Silicon Valley, in the restaurant industry, uh, in academia, in factories, in Chicago. And there was no guarantee of what was going to happen, but there was just a commitment across the New York Times newsroom to taking the moment to dive into these stories. Thank you. So from the reporters to the sources, and um, I'm going to start with you, Laura, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, in one way, this all began with you, and you know, as Jodie paid tribute a moment ago, an ordeal when you were summoned to your boss's hotel room during a film shoot in Dublin in 1992. You were in your early 20s. You've described how he demanded that you undress before masturbating over you, to you, over you until you sobbed so much that he got angry. How did it feel to be asked by Jodie across a picnic table in Cornwall 25 years later to dredge up that very painful episode? I mean, it was a long time after the event, so, you know, a lot of my life had moved on, but Jodie handled it with huge sensitivity, and she never asked me to give her a... Her first steps were to say... I want to ask you some questions and do you recognize any of this behavior? And so it was an easy, you know, she lured me in rather than expected me to just blurt out what had happened to me. She made me feel I was in safe hands. So she built up a relationship of trust from the very beginning. I mean, I think it's important for the audience here tonight to understand what great courage you showed though. And I want to... Uh, mentioned that obviously in the book Jodie and Megan recount how the Harvey Weinstein team insisted they would prove you a liar and this was in the run-up to surgery that you had to undergo it meant you'd have to tell your children what had happened 25 years earlier and with your permission I want to quote from the email you wrote to Jodie and Megan and which they include in the book is that okay thank you I feel I'm speaking out on behalf of women who can't because their livelihoods or marriages may be affected. I am the mother, said Laura, of three daughters, and I do not want them to have to accept this kind of bullying behavior in any setting as normal. I have been through life-changing health issues and know that time is precious and confronting bullies is important. My family are all supportive of my decision I am happy to go on record. That sounds to me like the voice of someone very composed, very determined. Do you think you've been waiting for this moment for 25 years? Well, certainly when revelations of other predators started to emerge, I did think, I mean, this has to break, there has to be. So I, at that point, started to think there was a possibility that it would come out. And yes, and I started Googling his name to see, you know, were there any stories. And yeah, so I suppose, yeah. But initially, you just want to forget it. You want to move away from it. You want to live, you know, change your life, move on. But the further away I got from the assault, the more I started to... Yeah, I suppose I, the more I started to hope that he, the story would come out, he would be, he would be discover, you know, discovered, his predation would be exposed. 
Rina, can I turn to you now? Your ordeal, um, I'm just going to summarise these so that if you haven't read the book yet, which you must do, that you have, um, you have a, a brief understanding of, of what exactly everybody went through. Rowena, your ordeal was in 1998 at the Venice Film Festival, as I understand it. Now, you were also in your early 20s. Unlike Laura, after it, you were asked to sign a very strict non-disclosure agreement, which meant you couldn't even talk to your husband or a therapist about what happened. You've only started talking about this publicly in recent weeks. So when the New York Times, in the shape of Jodie Megan, approached you in 2017, why did you decide against talking, taking the opposite decision from the one Laura took? I think everybody has a very personal journey about coming forward, especially about um, incidents that happened long ago that might be uh, very traumatic and highly personal. Um, I have to say that other women have spoken about how they waited for the knock on the door. Um, When I knew that Jodie Cantor had turned up on my driveway in California, my only reaction was sheer terror. And I think that um, you don't overcome a 20-year secret overnight. So I wasn't really able to wake up the next day and be resolved about what I wanted to do. In fact, to begin with, I was pretty certain that I would never speak out. I think there are deep personal reasons for not speaking out. Um, You've alluded to marriage and livelihoods, and certainly I wanted to consider my relationship with my husband and my four children, who were very young at the time. Uh, The youngest child was only six months, so I was very immersed in pretty intensive parenting, and that can sometimes make you a bit blind to what is going on in the rest of the world. Um, But then as time has gone on, I started to think more, you know, once I'd begun to square things away with my own personal intimate circle, I also began to think more about the cultural and societal pressures when you speak out. Even if your family is supportive, um, there's a big difference between going on record and being public about a story like this. Um, My story has only been public for barely two months. And even though I had the privilege of being able to observe Friends and colleagues, such as Laura and Zelda, bravely step forward with their stories first. It's a very different experience when you come forward yourself. And I think the things that you imagine might happen and the things that you imagine, the ways in you you imagine yourself feeling, actually bear very little resemblance to the real experience. And what I will comment on... You know, my story's been out for a few weeks, so in some ways it's still a live experience, and I haven't thoroughly processed what it might mean for me. But um, it's interesting that people speak very much of keeping a suffocating secret, and I've spoken about it too in the New York Times, keeping a suffocating secret for 20 years, and the challenges that bears. And that's certainly an incredibly difficult and traumatic experience. But, you know, there are also challenges that come with speaking out. Your story is not your own anymore. It's in the private domain. People comment about it. People tweet about it. People form their own views. There may be misperceptions. There may be disagreements. And in some ways, your story grows its own legs, like a little child, and walks away from you. And you find that you're not the protagonist, even in your own story, once it goes public in the way that you thought you once were. Very interesting way of putting that, yes. Zelda, you are slightly different because for you the bigger trauma 
was not dealing with Harvey Weinstein's behavior, though you had to put up with some of that, but you found ways, as you describe it, to protect yourself. But you talk about the biggest trauma being the lawyers afterwards when you reported what had happened, the attempted rape of Rowena. Tell us about that. What did happen and why was it so traumatic for you? Well, I think I believed very naively that once we went to the law, we would have access to justice. And I think it all seems very obvious now, but Marina and I were very young. Neither of us had ever dealt with lawyers in any form. And I didn't know the difference between a criminal lawyer or an employment lawyer or any of those things. And I just presumed that when, when we couldn't find recourse within the company, that we would go to the law and we would go to court and Harvey would go to prison. I really thought it would be that simple. Um, and the awful revelation, and it really was earth-shattering. I mean, Harvey's behavior was terrifying and... Um, disgusting and painful to experience uh, every time you were with him. But actually, the, what you thought were the pillars of your own culture being taken away from you immediately and suddenly realizing that you had no help. And we were two well-educated, middle-class girls who really had a lot of help, essentially, at our fingertips, you would think. And we had nothing and were told, or certainly it was explained to us, that really the only option we had without risking our entire family's reputation, lives and finances was to accept some form of settlement agreement for the damages that had occurred. In exchange for your silence, yeah. in the form of a non-disclosure agreement. Yes, it wasn't really described initially as a non-disclosure agreement. That's a sort of new... That was what it turned out to be. I think when we first entered into the negotiations for this agreement, we again naively thought that this was our only weapon and this settlement and agreement would stop Harvey's behaviour. We actually negotiated more clauses that he was meant to uphold than we had to uphold. Um, and I believe if he had been made to uphold those clauses, we wouldn't be in quite such a terrible position that we're in today. Yes. History might have been different if he had had to apply some rules. Yeah. Thank you. Let's go back to the reporters, and I want to talk directly about non-disclosure agreements because they seem to have been a huge problem. They come up again and again and again uh, in the book, both in relation to the sources and in relation to your difficulties in reporting the story. Um, so, thank you to your reporting. We are all now familiar with the way that NDAs are often used to hide patterns of abuse in the workplace. But I'm, I want to know how you worked it out um, for yourselves, how you mapped it, given that the very nature of an NDA is that people can't even acknowledge they exist. Megan, do you want to go first with this one? Well, sure. You're, I mean, we quickly realised that, that there were... Uh, multiple women who had been uh, forced into secret settlements with Weinstein. Uh, there was, we come, came to see her as the patient zero of the Weinstein investigation, a young woman who had gone to work for, uh, in Weinstein's first company, Miramax, uh, 
right out of college in 1990 and uh, pretty much pretty quickly disappeared from the office following an alleged sexual harassment. And so when I was able to track this woman down to a home outside New York, uh, she I, and I knocked on the door and she opened it and she said, I've been waiting for this knock on my door for 25 years. Um, but she was, like many of these other women, legally prohibited from speaking to us. And so we realized that there was actually likely a long paper trail of these financial payoffs that had been made, and that while they had been used to help hide this alleged misconduct over the years, that if we could piece it together, it would actually help expose it. And so over the course of the many months, you know, this involved Jody showing up in Rowena's uh, driveway. It involved Jody actually meeting with uh, Zelda here in London. Um, And it ultimately actually Harvey Weinstein's side of high-priced PR and lawyers ended up ultimately confirming information as well. But in the end, we were able to show that Weinstein had paid as many as 12 secret settlements from that first one in 1990 all the way up through 2015. And while nobody would disagree that um, victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault deserve financial recompense, this is just one story that that also shows how they can be used by alleged predators to cover their tracks and go on and allegedly hurt more women. And um, Jody, in defense of NDA, some lawyers say their clients want privacy and that the women involved sign of their own free choice, that no one's holding a gun to their head. What's your response to that? What we've found in our reporting is not really a challenge to the idea that victims want privacy, not really a challenge to the idea that they deserve some financial recompense for what happened, but instead the critique is that the confidentiality can be so ironclad that, first of all, it binds the women forever and in such a severe way. I mean, when Rowena was talking about her reluctance initially to speak to us, I think we have to acknowledge you were legally bound from from answering that knock on your doorstep, from telling us anything that had happened. And then I think the bigger critique, the sort of wider one, is that not only does do these uh, agreements not help us address the problem of sexual harassment, right? They clearly haven't helped us rectify this problem in society because they've helped cover it up, but they also end up enabling predators in many instances. You know, for the New York Times, this work was never just about Harvey Weinstein. It was about Bill O'Reilly. It was about stories in the restaurant industry and in Silicon Valley and in sports and even in areas like cheerleading and among female prison guards. And you see these NDAs as a common motif across all of these different industries. And, you know, it was a, there was a real sense of recognition for us reporting on this because we said there were so many people on our team and even Megan and I had reported on gender for a very long time. And so when we under, what, there was a moment in the investigation when we came to understand, wait a second, the United States and the United Kingdom essentially have a secret, unofficial system for dealing with sexual harassment and abuse. And that system is to pay women money so that they cannot speak about their experiences even to the people closest to them for the rest of their lives. They cannot warn other women. And these agreements 
often allow the perpetrators to go on and hurt other people. Thank you. Um, Rowena, can you just tell us briefly what impact signing that NDA had on you? How did that feel? How bound and alone did you feel with that secret? I think it has to be said that when you are 24 and you sign an agreement like the one that Zelda and I signed, um, I strongly believed when I walked away from the law offices that that was the end of a very difficult chapter, that I was able to draw a line and that I was still young in my industry and that I could go ahead and get another job in the film industry and essentially recover quite quickly. And really the reality is very far from that. I spent some months looking for another job in the film industry. I wasn't, um, you know, doors would open for interviews, but certainly not for job prospects once you'd left Harvey Weinstein's office. So finding a job in the film industry was much harder than I had ever anticipated. You know, eventually, as has been reported, I was coerced to return to Miramax, and that in itself was another form of being bound, really, and it felt terribly constrictive. But really, the career repercussions are only the beginning. The emotional repercussions run much, much deeper, and they're much more difficult to unravel. And I think the pressure of not being able to speak to anyone, either from a professional or personal point of view, I don't think one can underestimate the burden of that. Um, And I think, you know, having kept a 20-year secret and then just having spent two months talking about it more publicly, I'm yet to see what the full repercussions are in terms of how to unwind that really emotionally. You'll have to ask me again in 20 years. We will. Thank you. And um, Zelda, I put that to Jodie a moment ago, but obviously you will have heard people saying, well, it's a free choice, no one's got a gun to, to anyone's head, some clients want privacy too. Did you feel you had a choice? We had no choice. There was absolutely no choice. And I think, in fact, Jodie said something very pertinent yesterday, which is there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. Uh, And frankly, there isn't a place for secrecy around criminal behaviour or abusive behaviour. And I think what Rowena was saying is, is that, you know, these agreements are offered as a panacea. And the reality is, is that signing an agreement isn't the end of it. It's actually the beginning of a much darker, more complex battle. And I think nobody really understood that until this story broke, and we're still discovering that. Well, again, thank you for bringing that to the light because that is very important. Laura, I want to ask you, you weren't required to sign an NDA, and there was no settlement in your case. But like Rowena, you stayed at Miramax. Well, Rowena went back to Miramax. You stayed at Miramax for some time after the incident with Harvey Weinstein. Now, some people are puzzled by that. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain it to those who are puzzled? Mm -hmm. It, I was, how do I explain it? I think when I walked out of that hotel room, having gone through this terrible experience, I walked out feeling deep shame, deep humiliation, and a sense of responsibility for what had happened to me. And I couldn't bring myself to tell the full story to anybody, but I did need to say what had happened. So I rang my parents and I told them a sort of version of what had happened. I told the Miramax producer who I was working with what had happened, but again, it was a more palatable version. And I think at that point I was 
guided by them, their advice, which was, you know, first of all, the producer got Harvey to apologise and say he would never do it again. My parents, not knowing the full story, thought that if she's working in London, he's, she's never going to see him. So, and I believed that, you know, this was a job I really wanted and there weren't that many op- opportunities. Um, but, you know... It came at a real cost, you know. You, I walked into a job never feeling... I feel like he took... He, you know, I did deserve the job, but he never, I, ne- I never got to f- enjoy that feeling of what it was like to be there because I felt I'd compromised hugely. Thank you. Now, this is obviously not just a story about the brave women on this platform. It is a story about a predator... Behind the predator is a system, which we've heard a bit about from uh, Jodie and Megan, a system which protects. So let's look at that uh, more closely and how it protects when it feels under threat. So Jodie, tell us, how did the Weinstein operation fight back once he and they became aware of the investigation you were running? In so many ways. For example, when Laura and I first got on the phone, she had just gotten a phone call from an old loyal assistant of Weinstein who had tried to convince her that they were all one happy family. And this assistant had warned Laura. She said, there are cockroach journalists calling around with questions about what happened in the past. So that was a piece of it. So that we knew about. Um, And there were other parts we knew about right before publication. As we got closer, Harvey Weinstein staged this sort of um, massive counter-offensive. He had a huge team of high-priced PR people, lawyers, who came at us with everything they had. We were writing under legal threat. At one point, Harvey Weinstein himself barged into the New York Times uninvited, We got a call like 15 minutes beforehand saying that he was coming, and we were like, he's coming here? Like, do we we let him upstairs? Um, And what he was holding essentially was a folder of information intended to slime uh, some of the women who were going to be in our story. And not only that, but he was accompanied by two famous women's rights advocates. He was flanked by Lisa Bloom, a sort of famous American celebrity uh, lawyer, a victim's rights attorney, and also Linda Fairstein, who was an incredibly famous sex, former sex crimes prosecutor in New York. But it turned out that even that was not the, extensive, the extent of it. And there was an entire sort of secret manipulative operation on the way to target not only Megan and I and the Times, but also sources who might speak to us. In the language of Harvey's papers, which Megan later obtained, they were called, any woman who might speak to us with a story was called an adverse source. And basically, Weinstein hired Black Cube, an Israeli firm consisting of private ex-intelligence agents who tried to dupe and manipulate us and potential sources. For instance, um, one day in the summer of 2017, I got a phone call. uh, No, I I got an email um, from a woman who seemed to be named Diana Phillip. She told me she she was a women's rights advocate from here in the UK, that she wanted to speak to me for an event. 
It turns out she, had, she was no such thing. She was actually a black cube agent who was trying to dupe and manipulate us. And, and actually, what we also found out later is that Harvey Weinstein had a contract out on our story. If Black Cube was able to prevent the publication of our story, they would have been paid $300,000 as a reward. Wow. Going back to one aspect of, the, of, the, of what you were up against that you just mentioned, the number of women, high-profile women, um, in acts of what appeared to be great hypocrisy. Lisa Bloom, you mentioned, famous as a long-time advocate on victims' rights. Now, in the book, the two of you quote an email she wrote to Harvey Weinstein. I feel equipped to help you against the roses of this world. That's Rose McGowan she's talking about. Because I have represented so many of them. She went on to suggest ways of discrediting accusers by portraying them as liars. I mean, it is really, really shocking, isn't it? I mean, I, hear, yeah. I, mean, I heard yeah. everything Jody said, yeah. and the question that comes to mind is, were you terrified and were you shocked? We, we, were, not, we were never terrified for ourselves. I mean, as investigative journalists, we wake up every morning ready to go toe-to-toe with the powerful and wanting to do that. Um, but we, were at, it, we certainly were scared for our sources at certain points in our investigation, especially when we had to go to Weinstein with everything that we were preparing to publish and naming the people who were going to be on the record in the story. Uh, That really opened, set set about a 48-hour period where we really felt like our sources were kind of sitting ducks for any last-minute desperate attempts he was going to make. But, you know, on the question of were we shocked, absolutely. And, you know, in the course of writing this book, we're able to show some of the surprising figures who helped bring the truth to light. Um, you know, Erwin Ryder, for example, was one of the, he was a longtime accountant in Harvey Weinstein's own company and ultimately became one of our most valuable secret sources, slipping us information that helped reveal the truth about the boss. But some of these other people who had who worked for Weinstein, like Lisa Bloom. I mean, our jaws dropped. We knew, obviously, in the course of our investigation when we were doing our reporting in 2017 that she was working with him, that she was by his side at the end as he was trying to fight back the story. She said that she had, she said that she had only crossed sides to work with Weinstein because she had, was under the impression that it had made inappropriate comments to women and that she wanted to help him apologize for his behavior. In the reporting of this book, uh, we, we were able to obtain confidential records, including her billing records, an hour-by-hour accounting of what she really did for him. And this, this sort of the, the email that you quote, the, basically her job audition memo, in which she spelled out all of the underhanded tactics she was going to use to help him undermine his accusers. She was basically saying, I'm going to take all of my experience working with victims over the years, harness that, and use it with you to work against them. It is terrifying. It's terrifying to think what you were both up against. And it's, it must be, you know, quite something daunting for the three of you in retrospect to think about what you were up against, some of which it's probably a good job you didn't know, I guess, at the time. But I want to put to you a question. And I don't know, I don't know um, whether you all want to answer it or whether one or other of you wants to answer it on this side. Because even among the victims... Um, The bravest women were not the biggest names. They were um, people like you, Laura, and you, Zelda, who came forward so early to give your uh, accounts. Gwyneth Paltrow did help behind the scenes. Only Ashley Judd, as I understand it, went on the record early. So do you feel that powerful women let you down? 
the th do, do any of the three of you have a view on that? Did you feel let down? Um, <laughs> Zelda? Well, yes, we were let down um, by our initial reporting, which was to the only powerful woman that we had access to, who was our direct senior. And it's a very complex um, discussion because I also understand the hoops that she would have jumped through through her life to get to the position that she was in and her calculated decision about whether helping us would have a detrimental effect on her career. And I think, you know, women who, a lot of women who are in positions of power have had to fight dirty. And I hope now that more women in power will feel empowered to help those who are more vulnerable. I don't feel that we were let down by the actresses. I think, again, it's an interesting discussion that the invisible women, our stories wouldn't have been heard if the visible women hadn't spoken. Nobody would have really listened as intently as they did if Ashley Judd hadn't gone on the record first and then if Gwyneth Paltrow hadn't followed. And although that may seem like a shame, I don't think it really matters because all that really matters is that the truth comes out. And I think the truth coming out is what will empower people further now. Rena, Laura, do you want to add to that? Well, I felt, I was felt supported by the powerful woman above me who wasn't particularly powerful. And I think her career was affected by standing up for me. You know, she says she never... Worked, you know, she was a self-employed, contracted by Miramax, and she ended up not ever getting... So speaking, so speaking her to power in these situations has a cost, mm -hmm. even for powerful mm -hmm. people doing it. Mm. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
I'm going to move on to, because we're running short of time for the platform bit, and any minute now we're going to open the questions to you. But just before we do that, I just want to run through the very, the, the how you built the forensic reporting at the end, because it's such a tortuous document trail, trust building with your sources. What did it feel like to be the people right in the middle of that investigation as you tried to push it through against all these forces resisting you to get to that point where you could press send press print. Yeah, I think they've now got the photo up, uh, up there of the moment when we finally pressed <laughs> publish on the story. Uh, so, you, you yeah, know, Judy. I could, I'll tell you one story about that because really it's, it's about two weeks worth of action that we recount in detail in the book. But there was a point, so Laura was really first to go on the record, but we really did want an actress to join her because it's half the story. There were two strands of women who Harvey Weinstein allegedly menaced. And we just had a sinking feeling about not having an actress give a, you know, an interview about this for the story. And so we had been speaking to Gwyneth Paltrow all summer. We had been speaking to Ashley Judd. And I called Ashley and I made the ask with about two days to go until publication. And to be honest, it felt terrible because our ideal had been to ask a a whole group of actresses to hold hands and jump into the pool. We had had this kind of fantasy that, you know, Salma Hayek and Angelina Jolie and Gwyneth Paltrow and Ashley Judd all would have done it together to ease the burden. And instead, I had to call Ashley. I reached her at the dentist's office and I said, I need to ask you to be the only one. And so I emphasized that it was a strong story, 25 years of allegations, all of the different forms of evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And Ashley, who has like a real serenity about her, did not answer. She just took it all in. She said, I'll think about it. I'll call you back. And so she went for a run. Uh, She prayed. She's a Christian. She just thought about what she wanted to do. And 24 hours later, after a very difficult interaction with the Weinstein team, my phone rang again. And it was Ashley. And you know those moments in life when you're just braced for rejection? I was so sure she was going to say no. And instead, I picked up the phone and she said, I'm prepared to be a named source in your investigation. And you know, I, I, I wept and I was embarrassed because the bosses were down the hall and you, you don't want to cry in front of the boss. But Ashley Judd put her career on the line to go on the record for this investigation. What, I mean, as, and I remember find, struggling to find the words to tell her what that meant to us because you actually don't want to be simpering or a suck up, you know, in, in these moments. And it's still a professional relationship with your source. So the sort of best I could muster is I said, this means the world to me as a journalist. And Megan was down the hall and she, she saw me crying and she saw me on the phone and she knew exactly what was happening before I even had a chance to tell her. Oh, such an emotional moment. Anyway, less emotional or emotions of different kind, I'm going to put to you, Megan, because in these moments, there's a kind of tipping point for other people, isn't there? Tipping point for, I mean, we mentioned a moment ago the accountant inside the company, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also for Harvey Weinstein's brother. And some of these people who'd been close to Harvey Weinstein, is there a moment when there's a kind of this ship is sinking moment? when people try to get off and kind of clean up their reputation by going the other way? 
Well, I mean, if you're asking, you know, one of the things that we did in the course of writing, reporting and writing this book was we we were able to, we worked hard to, a lot of what we're describing in terms of our interactions with sources and even our interactions with Weinstein happened off the record. And we worked really hard in writing this book to bring all of that onto the record so the readers could be there, have that front row seat for all of the action as it unfolded. But we also have reported into what was happening on Weinstein's side. And um, it's interesting, you know, within hours of pushing press, uh, pressing, Publish it, pressing publish on our story, uh, Harvey Weinstein's company held an emergency board meeting to figure out how to respond. And we actually obtained the notes of this uh, emergency board meeting. And you can see actually in action as it's unfolding the way that these all ma- this all-male uh, board of his company is grappling with how they're going to respond to this crisis that's just emerged in the pages of the New York Times. So you have his, his, his brother, Bob Weinstein, who submitted actually to a series of interviews for our book, who, did of- who had had knowledge of a- these allegations going back to the 90s, had actually provided the money that was used to silence Rowena and Zelda. And he's got an interesting story of his own, but this was a moment in which he realized once he had read the story that the ship was sinking, and he said, you're done, Harvey. There were other board members who were saying, let's stick by Weinstein's side. You know, let's, you know, we can't be held responsible for his behavior and things that he did 20 years ago, even though these allegations stretch up through 2015. And some of this stuff had happened on the watch of the board, and they knew, they were aware of some of these allegations themselves. So it was interesting for us to kind of read through these notes and see some of these uh, male board members saying, let's actually stick by Harvey Weinstein as this, as this story unfolds. And then there was Harvey Weinstein himself, who had Lisa, still had Lisa Bloom by his side. And he was proclaiming that he was going to, he had issued a series, he had issued a kind of rambling comment to us about how he was going to take time off of his company to get help. Um, but he, in this, in this secret board meeting, he, he, was, he wasn't suggesting any, that he had really done anything wrong and that he was going to take any steps to hold himself accountable. In fact, he was claiming that he was proclaiming to the board that there were actually going to be dozens of women's organizations, feminist and other women like Lisa Bloom, who were going to fall in line behind him to support him in this, in this kind of crisis moment. And he actually, there was a pretty, pretty ironic line that he said as he was promising all the support that he was sure he was going to generate in this, in this tough moment. He said, there will be a movement <laughs> to support me. And he was right about that. He was right. Was, but it was not the movement he was anticipating. We'll, we'll come back to that. And just when you all saw that story, I'm just interested in how you felt. Zelda, go first. How did you feel when you saw the story come out? October 2017. <laughs> well, not what Jody wants to hear, but I was actually really disappointed because it didn't feel big enough. And I think that that was because it was such a huge emotional burden to have, have, have shared. And at that point, because I wasn't on the record and because the New York Times were very judicious and lawyered it very carefully, they didn't use and they couldn't use a lot of information that I had given. So I panicked and I thought, this isn't going to get him. This isn't going to get him. This is just going to disappear. Nobody's going to care. It'll be headlines for two days and it'll be gone. Little did I know. (laughs) Um, So I can tell you, two days later, I felt quite differently. 
And Rowena, it must be very strange for you because this was all happening. You presumably couldn't talk to anyone in your life about what this meant to you. No. Well, my husband and I were hiding in the kitchen because he's not a... You know, he, he, had, he had drawn conclusions from his encounter with Jodie, so I was at least able to talk to him. And it's interesting to hear what Zelda said about her reaction to the story coming out because it's all perspective. For me, it was really a holy crap moment because I don't think I believed that the story would come out. Uh, they were not the first reporters to track me down. And after that initial moment of fear, when my husband said to me, there's a New York Times reporter standing on our doorstep, my next line to him was, oh, don't worry about her. She'll go away and the story will go away. Because I believed that, you know, reporters had come and gone over the years of keeping the end year. And I honestly believed that nobody could counterweight Harvey's influence and power. I thought it would be impossible to bring him down. And so I bargained, really, without the tenacity and persistence of Megan Tui and Jodie Cantor, because sure enough, the story did come out. And it didn't only come out, it sparked a global movement. And I couldn't have anticipated anything like that at the moment when Jodie stood on our doorstep. Now... Before I throw it to the floor, I'm just going to ask everyone here to just give me a very one-sentence answer to the hugest question of all, which is, what has changed for women all over the world in the two years since? Laura, you go first. <laughs> a one-sentence answer. Yeah. You can, do it. You can have two. Everything, I mean. everything and nothing. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ask you for a second sentence to say, which is the everything, which is the nothing? Well, it's out in the open. People are talking. There are still NDAs being signed. There are still, you know, powerful predators preying on, you know, vulnerable people. It's just nothing, you know, it's still, it's, those problems still exist. So the talking's happening at one level and at the other level something but, else is happening. Uh, yes, but the activity is still the same. Rowena? I would say that some of us who were silent have found a voice. Zelda? Well, I think Laura aced it, actually. Everything and, and nothing. But the point is it's the beginning of real change and it's not going to happen in a year, it's not going to happen in two years, it's not going to happen in three but it's certainly going to happen. And you two, I mean, an incredible piece of reporting, as paid tribute to by this side of the house, and um, a Pulitzer Prize, and now this, this brilliant book. Um, but when you look out there at the world around you, I mean, you mentioned the tech sector, the restaurant sector, the cheerleaders, the everything. Do you still feel frustrated that there's still so much more to do, Megan? Well, you know, we actually, in the course of reporting our book, we, it sort of would have been easy to stop with the moment when we published, when we pushed publish and the story went into the world. And that, there was no question that there was, I mean, Jody and I felt the shift within days. I mean, our emails and phones were flooded with women who were coming forward, some of them with stories about Weinstein, but other women who were coming forward with their totally separate allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And it became kind of a group project across the New York Times and across journalism around the world. And obviously, 
there were many women who just took straight to social media and other environments to, to, to go public with their own stories. And so for Jody and I, who had worked so hard to try to, uh, to, try to sort of pry these stories into the light, to see them flooding out um, into the public view was, was, was remarkable. It was like nothing I've ever experienced in the course of you know, my 20 years in journalism. Uh, but you know, there also was the, we also reported into the year that followed and the Me Too movement took off in earnest. I think that there's no question that things got increasingly complicated and confusing. And so we wanted to, and ultimately in, in, you know, in the United States, one of the, the most controversial, she said, cases that emerged was when Christine Blasey Ford testified before a Senate Judiciary Committee about being allegedly sexually assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh. And so in the book, we actually reported out her, uh, the behind-the-scenes story of her private path to testifying in Washington, which turned out to be so much more complicated than either side knew. Some, you know, millions of people watched that testimony. Some people walked away thinking that she was the hero of the Me Too movement. Other people thought she was a villain. And we realized it was just so much more complicated complicated than either side ever knew. Jody, just before I put it to the floor, glass half full or glass half empty on Me Too? You can't solve a problem you can't see, and we're finally beginning to see the problem. And that's why we are so glad that Rowena did go on the record for the first time in this book. Rowena, I feel your contribution is different than the one that Zelda and Laura made, but it's so important because by coming forward, you're making the point that there are still so many stories we don't know. This whole process has been driven by new information, and we still have so much more to learn. Thank you all. It's, it's your turn, and I, I know um, we've only just grazed the surface of the Me Too movement in the past two years. I know there'll be many questions from all of you. It'd be great if you could keep questions fairly brief. I'm going to take two or three at a time. So let's go for um, four, two, and three, first of all. Hello. Thank you so much. It's just been really amazing to listen to you all. Um, my name's Lisa Rose. I actually worked for Miramax in 1992 together with my sister who's here with me tonight. And I did actually speak uh, to the BBC and do an article on the news. And it was filmed. And um, it was... I, I just wanted to um, point out that I've followed a lot of how it's been going. And um, it's really lovely to hear you say that you think there is going to be change and that this is happening. But I also see so much where he's just getting away with such a lot as a powerful man. He's already silenced still lots of people. The, the court case was meant to have happened, I think, twice by now, and he keeps batting it away. Um, and my question is, um, I don't really want my daughter to grow up thinking that you can pay to make things seem silent. Um, and and I, I want to know if you think... It really is going to, if there really is going to make a difference, or if he's actually going to just make the whole thing quiet because he's managed to do so much so far. And on that point, I also wanted to see if you can make this sort of thing accessible to people who can't afford to come to these sort of things. Maybe do these, but also go somewhere in the east, east of London and charge a fiver or something. So that's really what, all I wanted to say. 
Um, so um, we're just going to take two or three at a time. So the next one was here. Thank you. Hi. Uh, I want to thank you on behalf of so many women who are still gagged. Um, my name is Cecile. I work on a campaign called Pregnant and Screwed, which is about um, women who are being silenced um, through maternity discrimination. I want to know what you think the future of NDAs are. Thank you. And... And up at the back, thank you. Hi, my question is broader, really, because, yes, the Me Too movement is about women who are being abused in the workplace, but surely it is more endemic than that. We have a society where, in the UK, prostitution is illegal for a woman to sell her body but it is perfectly legal for a man to buy it. And that is a law that has been made by men. And while we allow that to continue, that women in terribly impoverished and difficult positions are basically chastised and vilified, but the men who use them, the men who abuse them, that's okay. Thank you. So just so that we can get through lots of questions, I'm going to direct um, the questions to certain members. Just on the question about, on the point about um, uh, doing sessions that are free or cheaper, um, this will be free on the podcast and on YouTube, uh, so it's very readily accessible to all. Lisa, though, your question, Jodie, do you want to take that? Will we get a conviction here or will something else happen? So, Lisa, I don't think Harvey Weinstein is going to succeed in keeping this quiet, but I do think that you're asking exactly the right question in the sense of what ultimate legal accountability will Harvey Weinstein eventually face? On the civil side, the cases against him have been moving very slowly. They're extremely bogged down. There have been attempts at a kind of mass settlement, not involving an NDA, but it hasn't happened yet. And part of the problem is that it's not clear what sort of admission of responsibility on his part that will include. It's not clear how much money the women will get or how the claims will be evaluated. And it's not even clear if Harvey Weinstein will pay anything out of his own pocket. Because it turns out that you can insure against sexual harassment. You can. And the insurance companies may pick up a large part of the tab. On the criminal end, let's talk about that form of legal accountability because that trial is set to start in New York on January 6th. Megan and I can make no predictions about what will happen in this trial. Uh, Both the prosecution and the defense have had problems coming into the trial. And also, the way to think about it it is this. There's an ocean of female complaints against Harvey Weinstein, right? Most of those are for sexual harassment, which is not a criminal offense. It's illegal, but you sue somebody for sexual harassment. You can't send them to jail. So within that ocean, there's a smaller island of rape and assault complaints. But a lot of those are outside of New York City, 
or they're not eligible because of the statute of limitations. There are also women who do not want to come forward or press charges. So the New York criminal trial is essentially going to be based on the stories of two women with other women as witnesses about his alleged pattern of behavior. And we really can't tell you what's going to happen, in part because one of the women is still a mystery. We, she's anonymous. We don't know everything about her story. We and other journalists have not been able to interview her. And also, as we know, these allegations can be very difficult to prove in court. I mean, it, it also is worth noting that in the, we, while we can't predict what's going to happen with the criminal and these civil cases, it also is worth noting that Harvey Weinstein was, in fact, fired from his own company three days after our story ran. And this particular individual who had been one of the most powerful, if you work with him, you know this, that he had been one of the most powerful figures in the entertainment industry. And it was from that perch of power that he had been able to allegedly prey on dozens <laughs> of women for decades. And so, I mean, it's worth noting that that at the very least, that perch of power has been removed from, you know, has, has been removed. Thank you both. Um, then the second question was from Lucille was, um, you know, what is the future of NDAs? And Zelda does a lot of campaigning, has done a lot of campaigning on D- NDAs. So can you take that one, Zelda? Yes. Hi. And I'm very aware of the work that you're doing. Um, as you're probably aware, Maria Miller and the Women in Equalities uh, Committee have been, op- had two um, select committee inquiries into the misuse of NDAs. Uh, Unsurprisingly, our government is being pretty slow. (laughs) Not least because we currently have in government several quite important politicians who are no strangers to their own NDAs. (laughs) However, there is movement... But I think, again, as I said earlier, it's not going to happen fast. But this issue is not going to go away. Um, And something that is, is, I think, a very positive, and I hope will give you some hope, is that the law sector has actually been taking this very seriously. And um, there is an enormous amount of conversation, which I know isn't change, but it's the beginning of change. And... um, there are many regulatory changes being looked at. (laughs) Nobody has published anything of any great worth yet, but this will change. It also starts by everybody looking a little more closely at their own businesses and the things that they sign. And it sounds like a really small and insignificant step And I hate to drop Intelligence Squared into this, but before we came on stage, we had to sign a a waiver. And within that waiver, (laughs) there was (laughs) a non-disclosure clause. (laughs) So read your contracts really carefully, everybody. (laughs) But we didn't sign it. We didn't didn't sign sign it. it. (laughs) We crossed it out. Also, the the Human Inequalities Commission have just recently published, which I think is really important that people read, new guidance on this, which is very strong. It's not legally binding, but it's very strong, and it's very accessible to the public. There are also areas like there's a new um, charity called Women for Justice, which means that you can get free legal advice on issues like this. So it's beginning to happen. 
small increments. And, you know, I do have hope that there'll be change. I think eventually there should be no place and they will be banned in, the, in areas of discrimination, abuse and... Criminal behaviour. Hmm? Yeah, and criminal behaviour in the workplace. Thank you. Quick word from either of you two on NDAs. You must have views after all that you've been through at the hands of NDAs. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. In you, you had you had actually raised in one of your questions the, the 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 sort of claim that victims do want privacy, and you had put forth some of the arguments that have been made um, in large part by the the high-profile attorneys who have worked on settlements. Gloria Allred in the United States is another, Lisa Bloom's mother, is another one of the most uh, prominent feminist attorneys in the country who is often seen on TV talking about the importance of helping to give voice to women and, you know, helping to do justice on behalf of victims. And another thing that we realized in the course of our reporting for this book is that she has also been very deep in the settlement business. Uh, She had worked on one of the secret settlements that had silenced uh, one of Harvey Weinstein's victims in two that her firm had worked on a, a secret settlement that had silenced one of Harvey Weinstein's victims in 2004. Her, uh, she had also worked on uh, secret settlements that had silenced victims of Larry Nasser uh, and Bill O'Reilly. And she had also simultaneously been probably the most vocal person when it comes to, she has become one of the most vocal people when it comes to setting the agenda in the public discussion of secret settlements uh, without necessarily pointing out that she makes a 40 percent cut of those secret settlements. So I think that, first of all, just the fact that we're now opening up the discussion of secret settlements to people like Zelda and Rowena, uh, who have actually been silenced by them, is a step in the right direction. Secondly, there have been certain states in the United States, certain state legislators, state legislatures that have been actually, like California, Gloria Allred's home state, Rowena's home state, that have actually started to pass reforms, who have said, of course, these women deserve financial recompense, but these confidentiality clauses are a huge problem in cases of sexual harassment and sexual assault, and have worked on ways to limit them, saying they actually pose a public danger. I want to go to our third, um, the third question from over here. Jodie, will you take it for us, or, or, or Megan? I, I, the, and the question of sexual harassment and assault being endemic, not just in the workplace, looking at it wider, the fact that uh, women are vulnerable to prosecution for selling sex, but those men who buy it from them are not. Um, so Jodie, a view on that. Do we need to end that legal inequality? I think your question raises a really broad challenge for all of us, which is when you look at this body of reporting, you have to ask, has the law abdicated its responsibility as an arbiter of right and wrong? Because on so many of these issues, including the ones that we spoke about tonight, you just see the law weighing in on behalf of the powerful and not the vulnerable. And so I think that's the question that threads through our work in so many ways. And because it's only been two years, it's very hard to see at this point what the over, how the law will react to this set of developments. You know, I, I identified with um, what you said about the laws were written by men. That is still largely true. It's only beginning to change. So do verdicts change in the courtroom? Does the composition of who's a judge and who's not a judge change? 
uh, now that people like Zelda and Rowena are breaking their NDAs, do we begin to hear their side of the story and hear a different rationale? Thank you. We're going to take some more questions. And just while the, while the paddles are going around, I probably should say that it's uh, running a brothel and soliciting, just to be very specific about what is a criminal offence in this country in terms of the selling of sex. So let's come up. We haven't had it over this side. So number one there. Um, so my name is Mabel von Oranje. Thank you for everything you're doing for all of us. I would like to understand if you break an, an, an NDA, could you be brought to court? I would like to understand Harvey Weinstein's wife. Was she a partner in crime or was she a victim? And I would like to understand, are there any men who have been helping you in your investigation and who could potentially have been on the panel working for your case tonight? Um, thank you for that. Another question. Four next. Thank you. Hi there. I guess my question sort of stems from the third question over there. And as somebody who went to law enforcement in a case and was very scared away by how they handled the situation. What system change do you think is needed? Thank you. And number two, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything this evening, but also for what you all have been doing. Question, I know that Megan has worked hard looking at um, Donald Trump and what he has been accused of by a number of women in the U.S. I wonder why you think what the differences are and why this has all worked out in a way that we're having this conversation and nothing and everything, but with Donald Trump, nothing, nothing, nothing. So let's... um because I know there's so many questions, let's, and time is, time is running short. So let's deal with these um, questions. Jodie, do you want to take NDAs? Will you end up in court if you break one? Harvey Weinstein's wife, and what? I think it was, I think if I understood the correct question correctly, men and helping and being up here on the platform. Okay, so I'm going to try to be very quickly, uh, try to do this very quickly. You know, I'd like to say that Zelda and Rowena are here tonight and speaking in active violation of this NDA and this settlement. And Harvey Weinstein... And uh, Harvey Weinstein, through his lawyer, has actually threatened legal retaliation against Rowena. So there's potential to repay the money, for example, in civil court. So these agreements are no joke. We're beginning to see a sample size of women who have broken these NDAs. And I think a question for us to report on in the future is, do they end up paying the penalties or does it turn out that these are mostly tools of intimidation? On Harvey Weinstein's wife, what I want to say is that we chose instead to focus on his brother, Bob, because this was the co-founder of his companies. This was somebody who had responsibility over legal employees. Uh, there's a very searching letter there's from Bob to his brother that he wrote in 2015 that we, re- that we reprint um, 
in, the, in full in the book because it's such a dramatic personal piece of writing and it raises so many questions about what happens when there's alleged wrongdoing in your own family and in your own workplace. I'd also like to say that Bob Weinstein wrote the personal checks that paid for Zelda and Rowena's settlement in 1998. And on the last question, um, yeah, the man I'd like to talk about is Erwin Ryder. I think Megan mentioned him very briefly before. There was a kind of deep throat uh, figure in the Weinstein investigation, and he was a man. Uh, And not only that, but he worked at the Weinstein Company. He was Harvey Weinstein's corporate accountant of 30 years. And for a long time, he did nothing. For example, he knew knew you, Zelda, and he knew that you had left the company under mysterious circumstances. And at the time, he really did not inquire more. However, in 2014, it's funny you mentioned the Cosby case, Laura, because that was also a spur for Irwin. In 2014, he was hearing more office chatter about Weinstein and and women, and he saw the Cosby case playing out, and he said, what if we have a Cosby problem at this company? And for two years, he tried to intervene, he tried to confront Weinstein, he failed. And so little did I know when I met him in a dark bar in September 2017 that I was meeting somebody who was really frustrated because he had failed Uh, in intervening in the problem. And that was his motivation for eventually handing over information to us that helped us publish the story. Thank you. Second question was, what system changes do we need? I'm going to put that to every one of you three on this side. Zelda, seeing as you're actually actively campaigning for system change, if you had a magic wand, you were talking about the government being slow to act and confused and distracted, as we all know it is. So you're in charge. What is the one thing that's going to happen tomorrow? I would ban NDAs entirely, not for their appropriate use, but for for use in the way that we're seeing them in this, you know, where they've been weaponised. And is it possible to define that in a way that works? Yes, it is. It's complex, but it's very, very possible. And it's mostly about changing our cultural view. That's actually the first big step. Thank you. Rowena, what would you like to see change? You're in charge. One change tomorrow. What will it be? system change? I think on a grassroots level, what is very important and what I'm just beginning to get involved with is kind of support groups of women that are sort of flying under the radar. I've I've become um, a bit of a spokesperson for the Asian American community in California, especially after my op-ed was published. A lot of activist groups have come forward um, where they represent many women, uh, maybe from lower-income categories, lower-income households, who don't have power, who don't have voice, who don't have agency. And I think that that has been very rarely spoken of in terms of the influence of these groups to bring together collective stories. And Jodie and Megan were able to... The power of having many women speak out about Harvey Weinstein emboldened individuals like Zelda and I to come and break our NDA. And so I think for these women that are very isolated, and remain silenced, the um, ability to come to a non-profit organisation and know there are other women out there who will support them, who will tell their stories on their behalf, may make some change at a grassroots level that is different from the larger accompanying, not to replace, but the larger changes in government and in the law. So it's making support groups universally available? 
I think that they would be very effective in reaching women who otherwise can't be reached in any other way, that are silenced and isolated in corners. Mm. Laura? I think I'd agree with you. I think, yes, breaking a silence, don't speaking out, being assertive, trusting your intuition, you know, just lessons that you teach your, your children, your daughters, your sons... So it's in a way that's in the hands of all of us. If you are the gut, you have, you have complete, well, I know no UK government has very much power, but it's say you are the government, you can affect one change tomorrow. What will it be from the top down? It would probably be NDAs, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. And let's take the, the, the third of our questions, our series of questions that we just had, the Trump question, Megan. Um, you heard the question. I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, our book actually begins with the reporting that I did in 2016 with women who came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct against uh, then-candidate Donald Trump and points out that I then went to also, I was one of the reporters who helped cover his election. So uh, to say that that was a different experience from the Weinstein investigation in terms of outcome is an understatement. That was probably one of the most bruising stretches of reporting I've done. Uh, The women uh, who were sort of brave enough to go on the record, while they did receive some support, they also received a lot of attacks by Trump and his supporters who called them liars, who said that they were uh, pawns of Hillary Clinton, In some cases, he said, you know, that the women were too ugly to have been um, his victims. And so he threatened to sue the New York Times. He threatened to sue me when I sought comment from him as part of the due diligence we do in these stories. He screamed at me and called me a disgusting human being. Uh, So it's it's been... And actually, when we came back from writing this book, uh, one of the very first stories I did back on the job was E. Jean Carroll, who was the most recent woman to come forward with an allegation, a serious allegation, basically, of rape against Trump. So the fact that I was doing those stories in 2016 and in the summer of 2019 tells you something. And I think that Jody and I have spent a lot of time talking about this. Why is it that certain stories uh, gain traction and, and bring about accountability and others don't? And what we found, both in the reporting on Trump and the reporting that we did on Christine Blasey Ford, who came forward in a, against you know, with an allegation against Brett Kavanaugh, is that when these allegations are made in the political realm, especially in these extremely politically polarized times, that both sides, it, it quickly descends into holy war with both sides taking up arms against each other and the women often forgotten. Yeah. That's a, a somber thought. Uh, let's go for two. Hello. As a tiny bit of context, I know it's very quick. Um, I'm a journalist at my uni, journalist, and, um, and in our student paper I broke a story on sexual assault at our uni, and it went national, and it was really, really hard, but the thing that was hardest was making sure that my uh, relationship with the victims was respectful, and I was breaking the story that was really hard in a way that didn't hurt them too much. Um, so my question for you is how do you speak to the victims and you know go go to their houses and stand in their driveways whilst respecting and um, maintaining an idea of how difficult that must be for them. And thank you for all you do. <laughs> thank you. And number four. Hi, my name is Louis. I'm also a journalist. Uh, I guess my question is mainly directed at um, Jodie and Megan. Obviously, 
given the scale of the story that you broke and the fact that you know you are at one I mean, one of if not the most powerful news organization on the planet you're in a uniquely powerful position to uh, break these kind of stories and bring them to light I, I wonder if for both of you you feel as though you now have an obligation to continue to pursue these kind of stories and if you feel as though in some ways you're now professionally bound by the impact that this has had or whether you feel as though you want to do different things and um, report on different stories thank you thank, thank you And three. Hi, thank you so much for your contributions and perseverance toward this collective story and movement. I'm also a journalist. Um, I, <laughs> this, I'm not sure how this question is going to land, but I'm curious how each of you personally made sense of this bewildering, pervasive, vast bizarre cultural phenomena of transgressors that, I mean, none of them see the fullness of the humanity of a woman. You wouldn't otherwise cross all of those boundaries. Um, how, how, do you, how did you personally make sense of this? Were you, yeah, that's, that's all. Thank you. Mm. <clears throat> So the three journalist questions. Um, we'll put it to the journalists first. Jody, you, you deal with the question of how do you manage those relationships with sources in a way that is respectful to those sources as they go through all the turbulence that they have to go through? You know, I think instead of giving you the easy answer, which is, of course, we try to be respectful. Of course, we try to be very professional. We try to be empathetic in our work. Forget about all of that for a second because I hope you're taking that as a given. I think instead, because Rowena's here, I want to talk about what for me was one of the most difficult moments of the investigation, which is the moment she referred to when I showed up in her driveway in the summer of 2017. So I flew to California because Rowena hadn't been answering my emails or my phone calls, and I drove up to her house, and uh, there was a man standing in the driveway, and I already knew that he was your husband because I had looked him up on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I mean, come on, that's what we do. And um, I asked him if you were home, and he said no, that you were out of the country. In fact, I know now that you were in the UK. And uh, I told him I was a journalist and that I wanted to speak to you. And he asked me to leave. And I said, sure. But I said, I've come all this way from New York. And the story I'm working on is so important. That's why I've traveled so far. So will you just talk to me off the record for five minutes in your driveway? And, and let me just explain why I'm here. And he very graciously said yes. And so I started to explain. I said, we're working on a story about Harvey Weinstein. We have cause to believe he may have abused women, among them his own employees. We believe your wife may be among the victims, that she may have a settlement, etc., etc." And, you know, at first he said things that, he said things like, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, or I can't remember exactly what the words are, but there, there was a kind of non-recognition. But that's often what people with settlements say. That's almost exactly what a woman uh, who did turn out to have a settlement had said to Megan just a few weeks earlier. 
Um, but as we kept, so I thought, you know, he's, he's giving me the line you're supposed to give when you, when you have a settlement. But a minute or two later, we were still talking about it. And I didn't disclose, you know, a ton of detail. And I made it clear that I thought we might be wrong. But he turned to me and he gestured uh, behind him to your house, which is a very nice house, but a, you know, pretty everyday looking house. And he said, does it look, do I look like a man whose wife got a settlement? And you're laughing, but my stomach dropped because I realized he really doesn't know. Rowena hasn't told him. And I've just, in the interest of doing my job and in the interest of being transparent and honest about why I'd showed up in the driveway, I may have just told this man something that his own wife has not shared. And I felt terrible. And I, and I was worried that I had made, you know... a a grave mistake. Now, luckily, Rowena and her husband have been incredibly gracious about this. We've talked about it a lot since it happened. It also helped that her husband, it turns out, is obsessed with the movie Spotlight. So... So, so even, even in the awkwardness of the moment, he was like, okay, I get it. This is like Spotlight. Like, now, now I understand. Um... But we've talked about it, uh, you know, a, a lot since. And, you know, the understanding that I've come to is that these settlements had left all three of us in such awkward positions. And so, uh, you know, I think I want to answer your question by saying that you try your absolute hardest and the Times gives terrific guidance on this. And Megan and I were constantly putting our heads together. But I think if we're being honest... I think we have to say there are still those really, really hard moments. But feeling terrible is what separates you a million miles from Black Cube, I do think. <laughs> so, you know. Second question, the, do you feel locked, bound, lashed to these stories now to shine the big light of the New York Times? Megan, deal with that mm-hmm. one. I mean, I don't think, I, I think that if Jody and I even tried to turn away from um, everything that's unfolded with the Me Too movement and all of the stories, I mean, Jody and I are still getting flooded with emails and phone calls from women who are, who want to share their stories. I mean, they, they keep us up at night. I mean, this, this sense of like, oh my goodness, did I remember to respond to the woman from two weeks ago? Um, I don't think that you, we have enough journalists uh, in, in newsrooms uh, around the world to keep up with the stories that are start, continuing to surface. Um, so I think that, and, and even just in the, the months since we returned from our book leave to the New York Times, not only was there the new allegation against Trump within our first week of coming back, but there was also the Jeffrey Epstein story that broke that Jody and I got quickly pulled into, which had so many echoes of the Harvey Weinstein story. It was almost like a Groundhog's Day uh, where, movie where we were back, uh, you know, back to some of the same questions in terms of enablement and in terms of complicity in the people who helped cover up the truth rather than bring it to light. And that's a story that still, to this day, has more, more questions than answers. Oh, yes. Um, to this side of the house, could you please deal with the, the third question? How do you make sense, given your own experiences, how do you make sense of the fact that some of these sexual predators do not see the full humanity of women and this enables them to do what they do? Laura. Do you make sense of it? I think it's impossible to make sense of it. 
in the same way I think it's impossible for men to put themselves in women's shoes. I think there's such a, a lack of understanding on both sides in a way. Marina. I think the power dynamics and indeed the power imbalances are almost impossible to bridge. In my particular case, it was really very egregious. You know, the most powerful man in Hollywood against someone who'd recently graduated from university. I think it was not possible for us to understand one another. And that, that, you know, and that in no way excuses that kind of behavior. Um, but uh, as much as I have found what has happened in 20 years ago baffling, it, I'm still coming to grips, I think, of the enormity of what the story means, you know, in a broader sense in terms of dynamics between sexual predators and their victims. Thank you. Zelda? Um, I don't think it is something you can make sense of, and if you can make sense of it, then something's wrong. <laughs> but the truth is, is that it's still, it is still the reality for the majority of women around the world. Um, and not just um, more vulnerable women than us. I very recently sat next to a 22-year-old girl who's just left university, got her first job in the city, and she is being treated in exactly the same way and suffering exactly the same things right now. And I said to her, but this is your moment. She said, I reported it to HR, and they've told me it's, it doesn't mean anything. And so this is still going on. And even though the conversation is loud, we... we we really need to keep pushing forward. And there, I'm afraid, I'm going to have to end the questions from the floor, and we're going to have, because of this precise point um, that we've just heard from, from this side of the platform, I'm going to ask everybody on the platform one last question before we all part, and that is what one piece of advice would you give to young women entering the workplace today? Zelda, pick up from the pick up from where you just finished the last sentence, what advice do you give a young woman in the workplace today? Just give me very briefly. Speak up. Speak up. Definitely. Speak up straight away. Absolutely. Rowena. My personal support network has been very important in breaking a very public story. And make sure that you've got your ducks lined up in terms of who is going to support you when you go public. And Laura, what's your advice to any young woman entering the workforce not expecting and, hope, and hopefully it might not happen to her but what is your advice to every young woman? To trust your intuition and to assert yourself and stand up and speak out as Thank you. And, and Jodie and Megan, having reported this story and been through all the years of investigative reporting that you've done, what do you say to young women you know, coming out of university or coming out of school? What is the advice you give them about the workplace? Well, I think that I would say that, you know, that, that women should never underestimate what both brave and hardworking women can accomplish when they come together. Thank you. And Jodie, last word to you. I would say seek work with meaning because take it from Megan and I, you never know what impact that work can have.
Thank you all so much. Thank you to you all on the platform, Jodie, Megan, Laura, Rowena, and Zelda. You have been an amazing, amazing team. squared thank you to the new york times thank you and most of all to all of you for coming and for showing your support and for giving voice thank you all safe journey home what are you doing right now perhaps you're in the supermarket maybe you're on a run or on the commute but wherever you are in the world And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.